So those are the important fine print. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm really unhappy with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so unlike you. <laughs> In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Shrinks Pod. We are back with our regular programming. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I'm joined by... Amy Donaldson. We're both psychologists and this is a podcast all about psychology. So I was on safari, on conference. Yeah, yeah. making me jealous. <laughs> well, it was mainly the uh, winery tour I took yes, after. That's why anyone goes to a conference. It's proximity to beach, rainforest, wine, cheese. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what we normally do is pick up a topic and choose some research articles and talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be talking about interpersonal space. So yeah. the distance that you feel comfortable hmm. with someone else. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It should be a bit of fun. The last couple of episodes, I did some interviews when I was at a health psychology conference. So check them out. How did the conference go apart from the interviewing? I did start a list of conference bingo. <laughs> Okay. So it was the, you know, mic troubles, computer tech troubles. Yep, nice. <laughs> um, can everyone hear me? Yeah. You know what? I, I'm going to, I'm not going to use the microphone. I'm going to stand down <laughs> off the thing. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I, I got a list up. It was, it was pretty satisfying. <laughs> if anyone's got any suggestions for a conference bingo card, uh, you can add us at mm. Two Shrinks Pod on Twitter. Can or, I oh, yes. do that to ourselves? What's that? On Twitter? Yeah. Well, because I'm already thinking of of some that I don't know were on your list or none. Okay. Yeah, well, maybe we'll make one. So, mm. yeah, so you can follow us on Trouble Twitter. Trouble with the coffee machine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to launch into that. <laughs> Are we in the break already? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's just rewind. Yeah. So, before we get started, just wanted to remind you to rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps people find the show and hear about the show. We Did po- they know we were hot? Like yeah, we, we popped up on the what's hot. Yeah, uh, we don't know how, yeah. but we well, liked it. That's all the people listening to the conference interviews. Mm. So that really helps people find the show, rate the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, Two Shings Pod is our Twitter handle, and you can also check out our website, twoshingspod.com. But that's all the fine print. So what we're going to do is Amy is going to talk about what are you going to talk about today? I'm going to talk about culture and interpersonal distance yep. to start us off. And then I'm going to talk about age differences associated with interpersonal difference. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to talk about attachment, of course, yep. and interpersonal distance. <laughs> and then I'm going to talk about psychopaths or psychopathy is, uh, relates to different levels of interpersonal difference. So, cool. So this is just all going to be a bit about you out in the real world. How close do you like to be to the people mm. on the train? to people at work, to family members, that kind of stuff. Do you, before we get started, do you use any of this stuff in work? Like does it come up for you in an explicit kind of way? Because it does for me, but I don't know if it would with adult work. Not in the clinic that I work in currently, I would say. Mm. Because for me it does a lot with kids about boundaries and stuff like that and physically testing things out and sort of physically playing with distance. Yeah, so right. it's something I think about on a day-to-day basis. So it was kind of interesting to read more. Yeah, right. See, I think about the only thing is like I do my consults 
in a medical room. Mm. So for you know an oncologist and they'll have a desk that's sort of in the corner and then some chairs. Yeah. And frequently the chairs are just a little bit too close for my liking. <laughs> and because my back is against the desk, oh, you I can't, can't, move I can't back. slide back yep. any further. And sometimes if I don't walk into the room and set it up first. Then you're too close. Then, then I just have to sort of like sit with that for a bit. Does anyone ever move the chairs? Yeah. 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 I, definitely, I definitely have had working with at least one patient mm. who'd had a history of trauma. Yeah that I could tell how well she was doing because there were some days where she'd come in, she'd move the chair a little bit back. Yeah. And other days she would walk and grab the chair and yeah. slide it very loudly and <laughs> bang it against the wall yeah. and and sat there. Yeah. And so it was like how close she was. Yeah. And that was just the way it was. So, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of, it's interesting, but mm. I, don't, I don't get a lot of chance to do it. What, yeah. what happens with you? Well, because, because kids boundary-wise often the first way for them to grasp boundaries is physical distance because it's kind of a concrete thing that they can look at rather yeah. than, you know, asking questions or kind of, you know, invading on people's emotional boundaries. It's yeah. usually far more concrete. So there's there's stuff like I'll go out into the park with parents and a kid and we'll experiment with different distances that the kid thinks it's okay for, say, me to be to them or their parents to be to them. Yeah. And I help teach each of them about when they get uncomfortable. Yeah. So when I get to the attachment bit, they essentially do that in the attachment study. Yeah, yeah, right. And so it's quite interesting because you're never actually told about your own signals about when someone's too close. We all just kind of respond to them. But if that's turned off by trauma or whatever, then those kids tend to, they go one way or the other. Mm. They over-familiarise and sort of touch too much or get too close. So in my room, they'll move their chair so that we're, Facing one another, knees touching is wow. how close they'll get. Yeah. And I'll have to pull back <laughs> or they'll go the other way and they'll be like yours where it's just couldn't be any further away or they'll want to stand out in the hallway or that sort of thing. Mm. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, about the only thing that I really can remember is tutoring uh, psychology undergraduates. and uh, Interpersonal space came up mm. as one of the things and I set my class for homework to <laughs> on the tram or the train going home to sit next to somebody when there's like, a, <laughs> where there's like an empty bench seat yep. of three or four seats and their job was to sit right next, next to that to. person. <laughs> Torture and, for and, that person. And it was really funny. There was like, there's a whole lot of people like, oh God, this guy's so daggy. Mm. And there was a couple of people like, yeah, yeah. I'm doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So take, okay. take us away. So the first article I found is called Preferred Interpersonal Distances, a Global Comparison by Sorokowska and colleagues. When I say and colleagues, there was about 50. It filled a page. No way. Yeah. Yep. So I'm not going anywhere near the others. (laughs) (laughs) You know who you are. Um, What journal? (laughs) Journal of Cross-Cultural Psychology in 2017. So interpersonal distance is quite a cultural phenomena and it's something that varies by whether you're in an individualistic culture or a collective culture. There's sort of general patterns that seem to be found pretty consistently. So Americans tend to be non-contact, so they have more of a distance between one another, but they do a lot of like holding eye contact and things like that. Whereas say Latin American, Middle East and that sort of thing, it's close physical proximity. Mm-hmm. We sort of know that in general, but these authors wanted to know a bit more in detail about 
what factors were involved. So they have gone to, to quite a length with this. They had a massive study across 42 countries. Wow. And so they kind of spend a fair bit of time talking about classical proxemic theory. I don't know if that came up for you, any of yours. So. Yeah. So that we essentially have four types of distance. So there's public distance, which is above 210 centimetres, very precise. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like when you're doing public speaking, that sort of thing. You make less eye contact, you speak louder, that sort of thing. Social distance, so for formal interactions, which is 122 centimetres mm-hmm. to 210. So you can see and hear someone, but you don't get any other sensory input. So like usually, depending on, on the person, you usually can't smell them. You can't feel how warm they are, anything like that. It's all, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Personal distance, it's friends. So it's 46 to 122 centimetres Mm -hmm. distance. And that's usually there's more speech and more eye contact and some of those senses start coming in. Mm -hmm. And then intimate distance, which is under 46 centimetres for close relationships. And they kind of highlight that, in that sense, you lose some of your senses, like vision, but mm. you gain others. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been a whole <laughs> bunch... It's be smell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the distance that we choose to have from other people is impacted by a whole bunch of factors. We're going to cover some of them today, but I don't know about you, but there were hundreds of articles when I went to look yeah, at this. It was, it was like, it was a great topic to the research. Yeah. It was like, oh... Anything I want. Anything, yeah. So it's stuff like relationships between people, age, gender, social environment, cultural norms, power dynamics between different people. Also like situational. Yeah. There's different situations where it's okay or less okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are a whole bunch of ecological factors that they wondered were involved as well. So this study used 8,943 participants Mm -hmm. over 42 countries. I think that explains the amount of researchers yeah. uh, location-wise. Participants completed demographic information and then questions about their preferred interpersonal distance for talking to a stranger, an acquaintance and a close person. And then they used a sort of graphic representation for this. So you have sort of had to position on a line where you would like the other person to be proximity-wise for each one of those conditions. Mm-hmm. They also gathered environmental and so psychosocial factors about each location. So that was stuff like annual temperatures and what the environment was generally like in terms of space, population, that sort of thing. Yep. And all fed all of that into the analysis. So it was quite comprehensive. So what they found was that there were significant differences between country preferences and your country that you came from was predictive of personal and social distance, so the further away to, but not for intimate distance. There was no difference really for that. The factors that impacted distance were the temperature. So the higher the annual temperature, the more people prefer a closer distance to strangers and a greater distance to the people who are close to them like friends. Okay. Which I that seems really found odd. really odd and really confusing. Yeah. Because you would think you would want more distance from strangers when it's hot. Yeah. Well, I do. Or just more distance from everybody. <laughs> from everybody. Hot. It was interesting. Gender. So women preferred greater distance with strangers and acquaintances than men did. And that was across, across countries. Yep. And age. Older people preferred greater distance with acquaintances and close people than younger people did. Hey, and so rewind. So hmm. women... Prefer 
greatest interpersonal, interpersonal space. space between strangers and acquaintances, yeah, but right. not with intimate people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. And men. Which I find interesting. The strangers make sense. Yeah. And I would have expected that. The acquaintances, I don't yeah. know. I wonder if that's where the age stuff kind of comes in because you tend yeah. to see young women in closer proximity to one another. Yeah, right. But older, yeah. Yep. And then all of the other factors weren't significant so they were quite surprised about that particularly ones about disease transference and stuff like that concerns about that in areas where that was higher mm. but nothing else had an impact you see what what's interesting about that is it's sort of this is cross-cultural phenomena so that mm. it's a human yeah human element to this mm. that it's universal yeah it's universal yeah yeah so there you go Okay, and did it have any kind of theory around that or like? Not really. It was essentially saying we need we need more on this because especially because the theory previously has mainly focused on breaking people up into like contact versus non-contact, sort of this binary division. Their argument was that you kind of need to look more at a finer level of detail mm. to try and tease apart the differences. Yeah. But then they also kind of acknowledged that there are so many different things as we'll go through that impact it that probably on a broader scale some of those individual differences end up flattening out when you've got this many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I wanted to talk about the difference between children and I was interested in the difference between children and adults Mm -hmm. because I was researching for this and my daughter literally sat on my arm as I was trying to type. <laughs> yeah. so I was like, yeah, you know, yep. I'm interested in that. So this is Preschool Children's and Adults' Expectations about Interpersonal Space by Marcus Paulus mm-hmm. and he is from the Department of Psychology in Ludwig something something. Germany? In Germany, Munich, Germany. And this is published in the Frontiers of Psychology in 2018. Mm-hmm. So... It's great. They start off referencing Newton. Mm -hmm. He starts off referencing Newton. (laughs) So, you know, space is this neutral parameter that's independent from the observer. You know, it's mathematically described, blah, blah, blah. But for humans, space and spatial position convey lots of meaning. Social interactions involve subtle but important notions of how to position yourself Mm -hmm. with respect to others. And then, like what you were saying, regulated by a variety of factors, emotional state of the other person, the other person's gender and age the actions of the other person and violations of these lead to irritations mm. in social interactions. So there's a lot, a lot of literature, but like little is known about how children represent social space mm-hmm. and whether there's developmental differences between children and adulthood. So really what they're kind of, are there differences, but also like really why are there differences? So they talk about, there's like a lot of research that sort of says that, yes, you know, young kids do actually regulate yep. interpersonal space and have an awareness of it. Mm. The classic attachment test is the strange, strange situation. situation. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. So that's the well you can you explain it? You're, yeah. probably, you're the guru. <laughs> so it was developed by Ainsworth yep. and essentially it was a child and their and their parent in a room yep. and the parent leaves and then 
comes back into the room and it was about observing the interaction between the parent and the child. So depending on the attachment style, it depends on how the child responds to a parent coming back after leaving them in this strange situation. So for some, they like run to them and then go back to playing. Some of them won't let go of them. There's a bit of a mix. Yes, I mean, so we talk about that in attachment, but... What we're looking at there is, is physical ha- proximity. Physical proximity yep. as a as a indicator for X, Y, and Z, right? So, and I, mean, I I held back from picking an article that was strongly neurological, but child-wise, it's that co-regulation of physiological arousal mm-hmm. and neurochemicals that happens when you're in close proximity to someone. Yeah. Yeah. So it serves a a function. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They also sort of see this in adults as well that. There's individual differences in the selection of interpersonal difference that are related to attachment security. Mm. So the attachment is this kind of factor. If you're not sure what we're talking about with attachment, pod four, mm-hmm. right? So, And I'll go into it a little bit next as well. Yeah. So, yeah. They've done quite a lot of research or they, and the, this author talks a bit about some of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go into a bit more detail, talk a bit longer than you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Yeah, no, uh, my first one was a short one. Yeah, so... the. They talked about there was a study in the 70s where they paired a whole lot of children to adolescents with same-sex peers and observed their proxemic behaviour. And basically that children used more space the older they were. Mm-hmm. And then another group looked at and said reported that children increased their distance from adult caretakers with age while they decreased their distance to playmates. Mm. So sort of that sort of seemed to be a bit opposite. And there's also like another study that looked at kind of like four and five-year-old children and their behaviour is affected by their need to belong. So if they were primed with ostracism, Mm. then they would sit closer to a stranger. And in addition, they sort of suggested like there was an age-related trend for increasing interpersonal distance in the course of development. Mm. So sort of there's this interest that there is sort of changes that goes along. Which kind of makes sense if you put it with then like kids having greater autonomy and things like that and greater ability to to modulate them things themselves. It yeah. kind of, yeah. Yeah. What they were kind of interested in is sort of saying just because there's a preference doesn't clarify whether they have a cognitive representation mm. of interpersonal space and just trying to understand that dimension of it. A representation and reasoning about interpersonal space is like really important because that helps you be better in social interactions, mm. like to literally to navigate the yeah. social world. Yeah. Like, you know, and you sort of see this like that with children, like you have to train mm. kids a bit about in certain circumstances. I don't want you running up to that person. Yeah. I want you to be in this place you can stay with me, but I don't want you to be all over that person mm. or something like that yeah. or don't run off from me. I need you to be close. Yeah. So, you know, there's this kind of the It's not an automatic world. thing but it's also often not talked about apart from there's those kind of until don't do those things until yeah, you're in those yeah. situations but it's rare that you sit down with a kid and talk about where they're comfortable with yep. other people or stuff like that. It's, yeah. Yeah. And then they cite some reference around so that preschool kids can predict others' actions based on their own beliefs mm-hmm. and past performances and social rules, and so including a consideration of distance mm. and stuff like that. So that's sort of thought to be showing that there's an emergence and growth of an ability to represent distance and reason about relations and stuff like that. So this is all this thing about psychology where you infer from behaviour mm. 
a cognitive process, a yeah. mental process is really kind of what I'm banging on about here. Mm-hmm. And some other research talks about like preschool kids have been shown to understand that close distance signifies a friendly relationship and that this is by preschool years. Mm. So four, quite early on. So this study, they wanted to clarify some of these issues and explore how children represent social space and to examine the expectations that children and adults have on how others occupy interpersonal space. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting the way that they did this is that they got... I'll show you a picture. (laughs) So, listener, imagine you've got an A4 piece of paper and then they've drawn a square in that and then they've placed four toy chairs, Mm -hmm. two and two. So two chairs are facing each other and another two chairs are facing each other next to it. Mm -hmm. So that was for experiment one. And what they would do is they did a practice thing where they had a doll Mm -hmm. and they would say, you know, you could practice placing the doll on any of the chairs. Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. This is a train carriage. So that was the familiarisation. And in the test trial, the experimenter told the child that another person wants to take the train and enters the compartment and takes a seat. There's no discussion about the age Mm -hmm. of the person. And while explaining, the experimenter placed one of the other puppets on one of the chairs. And they said that Lee, the protagonist, Mm -hmm. wants to take the train and take a seat. She realises that there is already another person sitting on one of the chairs and now wants to take a seat as well. What do you think? On what chair is Lee going to take? Mm-hmm. Right, so if you think about it, like if there's four chairs... Yeah, which one are you going to pick? Which one are you going to pick, right? So they did this, did that with a four-chair thing mm-hmm. and then in experiment two, they decided to do to up it to six chairs, mm-hmm. so three and three, yep. to look at that because they were trying to find out in the second thing to try to increase the yep. interpersonal difference. So, And was it in the second one with the chairs facing one another or facing the same way? Yeah, facing each other. Okay, so yep. The so the same like on a train carriage. Yeah so, yeah, so two chairs facing each other, two chairs facing each other, two mm-hmm. chairs facing each other, and they're all lined up. So it's kind of quite a simple thing. So experiment one, they had 49 kindergarten children, uh, mean age of 62 months. So they're older than our preschools. And 20 <laughs> participants, uh, 20 adults, and they were mean age of 23 years. Mm-hmm. And it had a very, very detailed description of the how to do the experiment, including yep. the size of the paper. Nice. Um, which I thought was very good. <laughs> so for the results, what they found was that preschool children, they more often chose the opposite position to than the next position. So okay. more often So they were facing directly. Yeah. Yep. And more often the opposite than the diagonal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there was no significant effect for the adults. Hmm. Right? Children were more likely to choose the opposite chair than adults were. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that they expected the protagonist to choose a chair that was close mm-hmm. to the other person. So that's sort of in line with the hypothesis. Yeah. Right. Then there was an age-related difference to the, the adults were less likely to choose the opposite chair compared to the kids. Mm. But there was no for the adults no systematic preference for one chair. Right. So they thought that the sitting area was too small. Yeah. Right. So they. There's not a lot of choice. Not a lot of choice. So they upped it. So six chairs rather than four chairs. Mm -hmm. The second experiment, they had 35 kids and 40 adults, much the same. Again, so they found that children were more likely to choose the next and opposite chair, whereas adults were more likely to choose the diagonal chair or the far diagonal than Mm. others. So it's like kind of like if you think about like you're in a train carriage, are you going to sit opposite that person or are you going to sit. Either like really far away, mm. I, I'd probably choose probably moderate 
mm. or far away, depending yeah. on my mood. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think it depends for me as well whether they're sitting next to the window or whether they're on the oh, aisle yep. and like blocking so, you in essentially. Yeah. So like in this scenario. You can get seat, in either end. But the, seat, but the seats are facing each other. So yep. they're looking within the train. Whereas yep. like on a normal train, you're looking forward or backwards, mm. right? Yeah. So if you're listening to this pod on a train right now or a tram yep. have, or a bus, have a look yep. around. And try out different seats. <laughs> different seats, <laughs> this experiment. And similar, children are more likely than adults to choose the next chair than the opposite chair, whereas mm. adults are more likely to choose the diagonal chair or the fire diagonal. So it's a much sort of what you would expect. And the pattern was in line with their idea about an age-related increase mm. in children's reasoning about interpersonal space. Yeah. Suggests this sort of developmental changes mm. over time about social space. What it makes me think about is that, like, as well as the kind of thing of not necessarily explicitly teaching children space, it reminds me, have you ever seen the circles that they use for kids with intellectual disability mm-hmm. where they explicitly teach personal space? They're yeah. quite They're quite interesting and great to use with any kid really but they kind of have concentric circles coming out and each ring is a next distance out so it's like you know parents friends acquaintances whatever and you put in the names of different people and then the type of greeting as well as the physical proximity yep and it reminds me of that it essentially mimics what might be for kids with typically developing cognitive abilities a natural progression of understanding that spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas it has to be explicitly taught I for some. I love that because that's so practical. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. like, you know, I think there's certain groups in society, baby boomers, that <laughs> could, <laughs> could, could do with. I'm going to edit that out. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, what's interesting is they, I'd forgotten this. These findings relate well to a study on personal space in adult urban passenger train commuters <laughs> where people were experiencing adversive reactions when they had sit close to others. Yeah. In line with what I was talking about. Yeah. So they, they <laughs> offer a couple of things that basically that young children are on average more vulnerable to adults and depend to a greater extent mm. on others. So that they are more used to staying in close contact or seek contact. Yeah. Second, the children might find more ease in approaching others and therefore expect similar behaviour from others. Mm. Whereas adults have acquired these rules yeah. over time of how to behave towards strangers and not to invade others' personal space mm. and keep. So, so I thought that was... Interesting. I thought it was kind of interesting. Sorry, sorry yeah. I'm a bit long-winded. No, it's good. Okay, so we're going to my favourite attachment, yes. of course. <laughs> when I saw it, I couldn't go past it. Adult Attachment Style and Interpersonal Distance by Katz and colleagues in Attachment and Human Development from 2010. We'll probably cover a little bit of what you, you have. I'll try and sort of snip it a little. But essentially the basis of attachment theory is about proximity and using that proximity to meet our needs and to particularly manage distress. So as you mentioned in infants, the way main way you assess attachment is proximity seeking, whereas with adults it tends to be around sort of questionnaires and questions about how you respond to others when you're in distress or how much you seek proximity, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it focuses more on the cognitive and emotional rather than the behaviour. Yeah. In adulthood, the attachment styles have a slightly different name than the kid ones. So I thought I might go through that before I launch into... So there's secure, which is the same as in infancy. So adults who are securely attached are comfortable with emotional closeness and dependency. 
There's avoidant, which is those who are uncomfortable with emotional closeness and dependency. Ambivalence, so those who are kind of preoccupied with an emotional closeness but fear what it might mean. And then it's not, it's included in half of this research. It's sort of a two-parter. In one half, they don't talk about this attachment style and the other they do, which is anxious and avoidant, which is known as disorganized in childhood. High in avoidance and high in anxiety. If you see it in a kid, it's quite a striking thing to see in that like you'll see something like a kid walking only walking backwards towards their parent or approaching them only with violence not with any sort of warmth Mm -hmm. um so it's quite a it's quite an obvious one when you're looking at child behavior yeah i mean i think about with adults someone acts in a backwards way Mm. to the way you would think or opposite way to the way you would think so i need help they would not contact and not exhibit Mm. anything but be distressed about that at the same time. Yeah. And be so a, it's got that, yeah, yeah it's got so that it's high not, so emotion it, element yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than yeah. kind of a shut down. Yeah, rather than a I'm independent, I'll do it myself kind of vibe. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Because in adulthood most of those attachment behaviours and things have become cognitive and feeling focused, we don't focus so much on the behavioural side of things. We don't kind of look at that as much because we can ask for help or we can express how we feel. Mm -hmm. There's not as much of a need to use the proximity side of things as your only source of communicating those needs. But despite that, the authors thought that proximity would probably be still managed in that same Mm. way and would parallel attachment Mm. style. Yeah. And you you think about people you work with, Mm. there's some people that, yeah, will keep a distance from you Mm -hmm. or you know not yeah. Not to intrude. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable getting close to this person because mm. I'm pretty sure it's going to make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not a good move. And they would feel threatened yeah. or uncomfortable or something like that. But it's quite intuitive. You might get to know that person a bit better and feel a bit more comfortable mm. doing it. Or and then it's more it okay. Yeah. 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 So this study wanted to look at two different conditions. One, proximity when standing but not talking. Yeah. And one which was proximity when seated and talking about personal issues. So the first one is the proximity when standing one. So they had 148 uni students from Israel. Two thirds of them were women. And they completed what they called a stop distance trial, which is essentially what I was describing doing with kids before. Mm. So participants stand still and the experimenter approaches slowly until the participant says they feel slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. There's sort of a marker on the floor of of distance. And so it's kind of noted down where, where they stop. And then the experimenter continues approaching until the participant says they're in considerable discomfort and they mark the measurement and it's completed with both a male and a female experimenter. And you can do that with your friends. Like if if you've got a friend who's game, Hmm. get someone to walk one step at a time to you and think about at what point do you feel uncomfortable? And the interesting one is, And it's anecdotal and yet every time I do this activity it ends up being the same for kids and for adults, that often when you do it with someone that you know, the first bit where you know that you've started to cross that line is that they'll do a really tiny little (laughs) kind of laugh. There's there's this little sort of like it's socially kind of appeasing, all this is a bit much. And even with kids who will say to me, no, I want you as close as possible when we actually slow it down, 
we'll get to that and then it's when I cross that that then the discomfort comes in. It's interesting. It yeah, seems like I, an see, innate I, thing. So I would, I would think about that as like it's tension and yeah. so laughter is like releasing yeah. the tension. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And because it's someone that you trust or that you know, it's not like you're immediately going to go freak out. It's, yeah. But it's that little bit of... <laughs> and, and, yeah. and what's interesting is it's... I work in a hospital mm. and often you come in very close proximity to people yeah. in corridors or in meetings mm. or things like that. But what's interesting about that is it's fleeting. Yeah. We can tolerate it. Mm. But like if it's closer yeah. for a longer period of time or it's intentional, mm. yeah. then that's a problem. Or if it's something that doesn't fit within those social norms. Like I'm thinking about like a lift. Rarely would you stay in still close proximity to a stranger mm. for the length of time for, say, you know, a long lift ride. Yeah. But if they follow what the norms are about where to stand in the lift, it's yeah. fine. But the times when they stand right next to you or face towards you rather than facing towards the door or whatever it might be, then you end up antsy. Yeah, one, of, the, one of our lecturers would, would yeah. say, get into a lift and face the back wall. Have you ever done it? No, I've never oh, done it. Oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I did it facing with my, the doors. Yeah, yeah, I did it with my brother once. We decided that we were going <laughs> to, the two of us were going to do it. And we went to different corners and then just stood there and people did not know what to do. Yeah, It was right. great, but you just have to keep a poker face. <laughs> Going on. <laughs> but it is interesting that like the situation manages it. And also the thing that I'm often aware of clinically is that there's not always the option to have as much distance as what the other person wants, particularly for the kids who have trauma and stuff like that. Yeah. Physically, I'm if you know, one of my offices in particular is quite small and I'm kind of conscious that they don't get a chance to Well, it's like what I was saying. Do before, that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, you're kind of just stuck in that space and so they're already a bit agitated before you even go anywhere with anything mm. so it's it's tricky but so so they did this with male and female experimented to test if that was going to be different and then after they'd done this experiment they completed an attachment concerns questionnaire yeah what they found was that a larger proportion of men were classified as avoidantly attached compared to women so about a third men and then 16 percent of women and then they found that a larger proportion of women were classified as ambivalently attached, so sort of anxious, than men. So about a quarter of women versus 9% of men. So the avoidant group indicated discomfort at a significantly greater distance than the secure group. Their first little <laughs> kind of thing was further away yeah. than the secure group. And then participants across all attachment styles expressed greater discomfort at a greater distance with a male experimenter than with a female. Mm -hmm. And that was regardless of their own gender yeah, right. as well. Yeah. So, so to just recap that, so like if you're avoidant... Yeah, you want... Then you want more, more space, space between you yeah. and somebody else, which And makes sense. everybody wants more space for a, a man than a woman. Yeah. They also found was that for avoidant individuals, they reached the considerable discomfort part of it at a shorter distance for male but not female experimenters. So what that meant was that the distance between where they were a little bit uncomfortable and really uncomfortable was shorter. So they yeah. didn't kind of have that buffer zone that was as big yeah. for male experimenters approaching yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, they found no significant difference between securely attached and ambivalent in terms of that next level of discomfort. 
So they also looked at 15 participants who weren't able to be classified into a various one of the attachment styles. It was too murky. I did wonder whether that then reflects more of a disorganised style. They didn't say, but I'm curious about that. But that group expressed discomfort at a substantially further distance than all the other groups. So they wanted even more than the avoidant bunch, which makes me think maybe that's where they sat. But the measure was only a three-factor measure. So the second experiment was using a seated arrangement. And so for this study, they used a four-category attachment measure. So it included the disorganized or fearful one as well. And then they also developed a measure of positive self-model, which was kind of your sense of self-worth, and positive other models. So the belief that other people are trustworthy and emotionally available. So they had 100 students, 70% female. This one, I was curious about how they were going to do it because I wondered if they were going to do go a similar way to what you did. But what they did was that they set up a room with an interviewer sitting on a chair at the sort of far end of the room facing the door and then somebody else showed them into the room and pointed to chair on wheels and said, sit wherever you're comfortable. And so they had to move the chair through the room Mm-hmm. to a particular location. They had marks on the floor for yeah. distance and then it was filmed. Was uh, the person facing them or not? Yeah. So the person in the chair was facing them and didn't move. They also didn't move their feet or anything like that throughout the interview. They were still. Uh, and they didn't show any large variances in facial expression. Like they nodded and smiled a little bit, but it wasn't too yeah. dramatic. Uh, So the person had to move themselves to where they were comfortable and then the interview started and it was about the attachment questionnaire they'd completed at the start, whether there were times in their life where that would have been different. It's quite personal by nature. So what they found was that the chair distances were similar for the avoidant dismissing people and securely attached people. Mm -hmm. So they weren't significantly different from one another compared to the other one where standing it was different. Mm. And that they sat closer to the interviewer than the preoccupied people and the disorganised fearful people. Mm. Yeah. The fearful people sat significantly further away than the secure and avoidant people. And then as in study one, there was a proportion of people that couldn't be categorised and their position was similar to the fearful and preoccupied people. So the ones who wanted that increased distance. So how do they make sense of the results? Well, yeah, so they they were quite confused about about the results of this one. Because it seems backwards that the avoidant people are happy to sit closer and the more anxious ones are wanting to sit further away. Yeah, they were quite confused about why this could be. It makes sense that the disorganised ones are furthest away Mm. and they thought that maybe the anxiety inherent in the preoccupation that comes with that attachment style was why they were further away. The other thing they did is that they, to try and make some more sense of it, they then put in the positive self aspect, positive other aspect into it. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that it was about view of yourself as well as attachment. So it was the two factors together. So if you had a more negative view of yourself and mm. that particular attachment style, further away. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, determined yeah. the distance. But your view of the other person as trustworthy was not relevant. So yeah. it, was a, it was about your own self-worth yeah. and your attachment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes of, sense. Yeah. 
So, yeah, interesting. So it, it influences, attachment influences, but in, a, in interesting In a couple ways. of directions. So, so that shows you the situation mm. does alter universal yeah. difference and comfortability. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder as well, thinking about it now, whether the amount of control in the second one versus the first one had an impact with the avoidant ones. Because mm. the first one, the other person's doing the moving. The second one, they're controlling where mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. and whether that is why they were more comfortable being closer. Mm. I don't know. And do they talk about facial expression at all? Uh, no. So they deliberately with both of them had a fairly neutral facial expression, yeah. like warm but not over the top yeah. because facial expression is something that comes into it. I'm yeah. assuming for psychopathy it might come in that, as well, Yeah, no, that's what I was going yeah. to ask you about. Yeah. So the fourth article that we're going to talk about is Psychopathy and the Regulation of Interpersonal Distance. And it's by Robin Welsh and colleagues. And it was in Clinical Psychological Science in 2018. What attracted me to this article was it talks about psychopathy, it talks about personality traits mm-hmm. as a driving factor. For so, like, my talks about age, and you're yeah. talking about sort of attachment, emotional regulation, and this is getting into the personality realm. Mm-hmm. And we did uh, pods five, pods twenty nine, and pods thirty. Yeah, all talk about psychopathy or psychopaths. We're into it, and so so it's really, really yeah, we're into <laughs> it. But it's also really, yeah. really interesting. So psychopathy is characterized by like persistent deviant social behavior and mm. interpersonal deficiencies. Psychopaths tend to exploit others and they may also cause harm by undermining social norms. There's like a conceptualization of psychopaths as not just limited to forensic or mm. jail, but also that there's a subclinical yeah. level of psychopathy that you can have. I'm trying to think of the rate. It's about one in a hundred, isn't it? I can't remember. I, I have a feeling it is. It's sort of, you know, 1% of the population meets criteria for psychopathy, but that doesn't mean that they harm... Yeah, they don't, people yeah. in a yeah. forensic or criminal yeah. kind of way, and so and some people have lower empathy mm. and or and higher antisocial kind of yeah. things than others. So this is either the idea of subclinical or and also like successful mm. psychopaths. So we we talked about that in pod thirty, I think it was. So you can study psychopathy by using questionnaires, mm-hmm. and there is some literature that kind of talks about well, you know that psychopaths. Uh, or there's this idea that psychopathic individuals are prone to invading other personal space. Mm-hmm. They did a literature review and they only found one experimental study on Interesting. that. That study by Vera and Marsh in 2014 had participants instructed to approach another person and stop when comfortable. So mm-hmm. it was like the stop, stop yep. distance task. And those who scored high on the cold-heartedness scale, mm. so that's a psychopathic lack of empathy, maintained a lower overall interpersonal distance. So in that case, it's kind of the reverse where the participant is doing the approaching, so they're not picking up on the cues. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They're not considering the other persons. Yep. So, but they weren't sure, Mm. right? Yeah. So you were jumping way ahead. Yeah. (laughs) And they weren't really sure why this was. Mm. Like, is it that they have a fundamentally different understanding of the appropriate interpersonal difference? Yeah. Or do they not react appropriately to nonverbal social cues? Right. So, okay, we We see. We don't know the why. Yeah. So we see that there's like, there's a couple of possible theories. Mm. So. Facial expression plays a really important role in the distance we keep from others. Mm. You can see that that's Darwinian, right? Mm. And they even reference Darwin. Nonverbal cues such as facial expressions mm. like are important when it comes to regulating interpersonal distance and 
that's really all about survival, mm. social interaction, but also survival, the social threat by an angry face mm. that triggers fear and arousal yeah. in you and that's processed preferentially. Mm. What that means is that we would be able to recognize that very, very quickly and yeah. react very, Respond very quickly. quickly. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's like that, that's that fight, flight stuff. And anger, expressions of anger promote faster avoidance than approach reaction. Mm. So an approach reaction would be a smiling face. Mm. Amy's smiling at me. I wouldn't process that as fast as if she, if she looked like she was angry yeah. at me, right? They've looked at this in virtual reality. Participants keeping a larger distance towards a socially threatening avatar mm-hmm. with an angry facial expression as compared with those that have a happy or neutral expression. Okay. In general, reactions to and recognition of threat is impaired in psychopathic individuals. Mm. So they're drawing a theory saying that perhaps psychopathic individuals should keep closer distances or fail to regulate interpersonal distance as mm. a function of emotional expression. So right. basically exactly what you're saying. Yeah. They did two experiments to replicate this finding, but then also extend it. Really, the research question is, is this to do with the display of emotion and how a psychopath would actually respond to that? Respond to it, interpret it. Equilibrium theory would suggest that personal space is regulated by approach avoidant forces until a social equilibrium is Mm. reached. Approach is fostered by happy facial things and avoidance by anger, but also that you can have it with other emotions, Mm. but they only looked at anger. And so they manipulated in this study an avatar with a happy face and an avatar with an angry face. Mm-hmm. Psychopath might lack that proper avoidance mm-hmm. r- response to yeah. an angry face. and then so They're not they deterred were, by it. Yeah, they're not deterred by it. Yeah. So it was really, really interesting. They got 40 volunteers, mm-hmm. 25 female, 15 male, uh, university students. They gave them the PPI-R-40. Mm-hmm. Which they didn't explain what that was. Uh, but then like earlier on, I actually noticed that they did. So mm. I, was, I was like angry and then I was like had to like eat my own <laughs> words around that. The, um, so that measures things like cold heartedness, mm. but also self-centered impulsivity and fearless dominance. So these are all kind of dimensions of psychopathy. Yeah. So three factors. Fearless dominance covers emotional and interpersonal deficiencies of psychopaths. So low arousal, low fear, high dominance. But it's also related to charming and deceiving behavior. Self-centered impulsivity covers this sort of antisocial personality traits, the deviant ones. Whereas cold-heartedness is essentially like lack of empathy, low empathy, not caring, that kind of thing. There was a lot of detail (laughs) about VR. The 3D projector, projector design F10AS3D, had a color resolution of 8 bits per channel and a display resolution of 1400 by 1050, brackets horizontal times vertical, in brackets pixels, and a refresh rate of 120 hertz. (laughs) It was a refresh rate that really got me. Um, Anyway, so... (laughs) Okay, so what they actually did, so they got... So they did the the stop distance task, like in your one, Mm -hmm. but... With virtual reality. Okay. Right. So they had three experimental factors and two avatars, female and male, mm-hmm. and emotional expression, happy and angry, mm-hmm. right? And then they had two different starting positions. Okay. And so, and each factor was presented three times, so they had 48 trials. Sure. So it's 
quite a lot of yeah. things. So the participants were told to walk towards the avatar mm-hmm. until a comfortable distance for a conversation had been reached for a situation where a participant would have to ask a stranger for directions. Okay. Right. So, yep. so essentially doing that but virtually, mm. right? With the results, they found that 72% of the variance was accounted for by their model. There was mm-hmm. no overall effect of psychopathy. Okay. But facial expression modulated interpersonal difference substantially. Participants preferred closer interpersonal difference towards a happy avatar than an angry avatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, 114 centimetres versus 123 centimetres. Okay. There was an interaction effect between anger and psychopathy. Facial expression had a smaller effect in participants with higher psychopathy scores. Okay. As compared with participants with low psychopathy scores. So like scores. they expected. Yeah. 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 So there was no overall effect, but it was definitely a function of the facial expression. Mm-hmm. Cold heartedness was not associated with a preference for a closer interpersonal distance, and there was no direct effect of the other facets, so fearless dominance okay. or self centered impulsivity. So basically, it was the overall psychopathic trait, yeah. not the individual components, if yeah. that makes sense. Okay. Experiment two, what they did was rather than have it so you were walking towards someone else, they had two participants that they were looking at, uh, two avatars that they were looking at side on, mm-hmm. and they had to move one of them closer, I think is what they did. Okay. So it wasn't face-to-face. It was, yep. yeah. Yeah. So they wanted to investigate this, whether it's a result of fundamentally different understanding of social norms. Mm. So taking the individual out of it, what would they view other people doing, mm. essentially? Is this going to persist when self-involvement's not involved in it, right, Mm. for the judgment? So the same procedure. What was the resolution of the VR? (laughs) It doesn't say on this one. Oh, dear. Maybe it was the same. (laughs) We'll write them a letter. uh, um, So you can only move one avatar in a given trial, so you can move both. You just would move one in. Mm -hmm. So closer or further apart to one another. Yeah. Again, no main effect of psychopathy. The model explained 82% of the variance, which is pretty good. These results are kind of complex and it took me a little while to try and understand them. But basically for males and females, there was a different pattern too if if there was a mixed couple. So like so if the two avatars were male, two avatars were female Mm -hmm. versus one male, one one female, a sex effect. And what you were saying before about how cross-culturally we prefer males to be further away than females they found that you can see that on that graph yeah yeah but then you can see that when there's a mixed thing that psychopathy was associated with a smaller distance estimates in mixed pairings but not when Hmm. not when the avatars are of the same sex and so they seem to think that that might be to do with it's harder to kind of work out who's more dominant yeah yeah because if you compare that to the research that I spoke about, everybody wanted the male further away regardless of the other person's yep. gender. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So summing up, theories that conceive personal spaces like a body buffer zone protecting the individual from psychological physical harm mm. or as a function of arousal would have predicted a main effect of psychopathy, mm. right? So they're saying, look, that, that probably doesn't because mm. that's not what they found. So they're favouring this equilibrium theory of personal space. So And, and that explains these deficits of processing emotional expression. Yeah. And then that's the function of why psychopathy... So the cues and stuff aren't functioning in the same way as yeah. what they are for other people. Yeah, so that equilibrium is out of balance mm. or is different and so they uh, invade people's space. Interesting. They, 
they did have some implications. Yeah. Just, just tell me how you feel about this as a clinician, given what we talked about okay. with psychopaths. The results harbor some insight for practitioners that facial expressions are not fully integrated to psychopaths' spatial behavior. Therefore, the training of personal space regulation in accordance with social cues may be of special importance in patient care units or in correctional facilities exposed to psychopathy. Hmm. A virtual skills training using our avatar in a safe environment may become a viable part of psychotherapy. Hmm. Can you see any possible problems with mm-hmm. that approach? What what might that be? Well, <laughs> well, they'll become better better at, at being able to. Yeah. So so one of the, prob- the one of the problems Which with is, social skills training yeah. of psychopaths or people who are yeah. high on psychopathy yeah. is that they can they can do social skills training, and then what they do is they then use those enhanced social skills to mm, then to further manipulate to. and deceive and harm others. Quite handy. Yeah. It's like that research <laughs> that was about teaching empathy to people with violent violent history in in prison. And people who didn't have any empathy, some of them fit the criteria for psychopathy, some didn't. And what happened was that was that they went, well, I didn't realise that they were so upset by that. That's amazing. <laughs> it, it's not. It's not really what you're after. Damn it. <laughs> That's not what we were trying to do. Ah, uh, dear. Okay. Anyway, so, but uh, I thought, I, but yeah, I mean, I, I know I kind of got a little lost, lost in the weeds there with the results, but basically... Yeah, psychopathy, they don't recognise these facial expressions mm. and so they don't... It doesn't regulate things. Yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, nice. So with that, we might take a break. Sounds good. And we will be back after the break with things we came across. See you soon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do this bit. Whoa, you're handing over control for this bit? Oh, everyone, slow down. Don't go off topic straight away. (laughs) But it's so fun to see the mixture of annoyance and then just exasperation on your face and the heavy breathing. Leaves on a stream. (laughs) So in the middle, apart from me torturing Hunter, we tell you about the various places on the internet that you can locate us and provide us with hopefully positive feedback. So you can do the whole rate review star thing on iTunes. You can write us a comment. You can also then tweet us various things. We appreciate the animal pictures that have been coming through lately Mm -hmm. on email and and Twitter. I know that's not Hunter's priority, but it is mine. You can also email us and you can go to our website. So everything's Two Shrinks Pod. Whack that in, you'll find us. Yep. Yep. We would love to hear nice things. Yeah. The rating and reviewing the show is really, really helpful and there's been a whole lot extra. So thank you for doing that and taking the time. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, I've managed to be reasonably contained. Mm. I haven't asked for anything to be sent down to the dress. I'm not responding. I'm not responding. No, no. He's just sort of partially glaring at me. Is that the bottom half of his face is smiling and the top half? I'm cutting off. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> so we're back. Uh, we're going to do, as always, we're going to finish up with things we came across. So this is the bit where we talk about random articles that we've stumbled across or, in my case, actively sought out with a burning question. Uh, are you going to kick us off? Yeah, I'm going to yeah. kick us off. I'm with a, with a first for Two Shrinks Pod. Oh, is that a news article? We've got a listener things we came <gasps> across. No way. Yes. So finally, after 45 episodes. No, don't say that. What do you mean? Well, don't highlight it. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, of course. So listener. We get uh, these every week. We can't decide which one. That's it. So Sarah O'Doherty sent us in an article by David Levy. Hmm. It's, I think it's from Psychotherapy in Australia in uh, August 2000. Right. So we like to label things. As psychologists, mm. and we probably actually don't label things quite as much in our clinical practice as we do on this pod, I have to say. No. No, that's true. There's more describing. So, but this article is called Pervasive Labeling Disorder, a Proposed Category for the DSM. Mm-hmm. So, this was an article, brief article, sort of suggesting that a new diagnostic category should be included in the DSM. So, probably at the time of writing it was DSM-3. Mm. Uh, yeah, probably pre-DSM-4. So we're talking about that the DSM talks about that it's only one one still frame in the ongoing process of attempting to better understand mental disorders. David was proposing a category that represents significant contribution to the composition of the DSM of the next still frame by focusing on one of the most ubiquitous yet least recognisable mental disorders, pervasive labelling disorder. (laughs) So this is the essential features of this disorder are an uncontrollable impulse, drive or temptation to invent labels and apply them to other people, (laughs) a repetitive pattern of trying to fit people into preconceived categories, an increasing sense of fear or inadequacy before committing the act, an experience of overwhelming triumph and relief. That sounds awful. At the time of committing the act. <laughs> uh, it, it manifests in many different places, particularly when the person with PLD feels uncomfortable about other people mm-hmm. and spontaneously assigns labels to others, thus viewing them as types rather than humans. It's quite uh, comforting. <laughs> That's it. Because it serves to control others and keep them at a distance. It provides a person with a temporary illusion of superiority and safety. Mm. Associated features are arrogance, smugness, grandiosity, sense of personal entitlement. They exhibit especially condescending attitude towards others. And this is a problem? (laughs) It doesn't talk about like their fashion sense. I was thinking about like, well, and with this, it comes like, you know, a flowing scarf, a Swiss Soiree watch. (laughs) That's it. A shawl if you're a woman. Yeah, tan pants if you're a man. uh, (laughs) Recently (laughs) bought some tan pants. Of course you did. Um, Anyway, uh, people with this disorder develop complex words. They uh, struggle to actually explain what the mm. precise meaning of is. Do they know. also become fixated on their own title? They don't, but they do yeah. say that the course uh, recovery from PLD rarely occurs once a person's annual income exceeds six figures. <laughs> <laughs> um, age of onset is, uh, it's, it's not, the disorder is not usually recognised until a person has obtained a position of social power. Mm. And in terms of prevalence, they, uh, it's usually socially acceptable, have reinforcement for this disorder. We use that to become psychiatrists, psychologists, psychoanalysts, astrologists, Scientologists, evangelists, <laughs> cult leaders, authors of self-help books, politicians, and even interview guests on television and radio. <laughs> so nice. thank you, Sarah. 
uh, <laughs> it is very good. And if you do That's have awesome. a Things We Came Across interesting article, yeah. send us it into Two Shrinks Pod. Lovely. Thank you. Where are you taking us? You're not... I don't, we'll go to you and then okay. we can yep. come back to mine. So I have been experimenting with a new therapeutic strategy that came to me on a whim and has done wonders. Yep. And I decided to see if there was anything related to it. So essentially I've been doing a lot of stuff with sour foods in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but for trauma it's really hard to dissociate if you're wincing about the sourness of a warhead. So it's been working beautifully. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I wanted to see if there was anything about sour taste preference. So so what's a warhead? A warhead is, is a is. small hard lolly. Or a candy. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah candy if you're American. Uh, and it's incredibly sour. Yeah. Uh, I have I've heard rumours that the American ones are sourer than the Australian ones. Oh. Um, I've been told that I need to buy some of those for my clients, <laughs> as well as buy my clients. Um, and so they're quite sour. For me, they make my eye twitch, anything that's sour does that. Because I remember having warheads in the 90s. Mm. There was like a fad of them. Yeah. There was two. There was sours and there was hot ones. Yeah. They still have a yeah, couple right. of different types. Yeah. And so I've been purchasing a lot of them and a lot of sour worms and and things like mm-hmm. that and, and having fun. Yeah. So I kind of thought, well, I'll see what articles are about sour things and see where we go. And what I found was that there's a link between music and sour taste perception. What? Yeah. So this article is called Striking a Sour Note, Assessing the Influence of Consonant and Dissonant Music on Taste Perceptions by Janice Wang and Charles Spence. And does it translate into earworms at all? <laughs> it doesn't, but it could. I did listen to their music. <laughs> Actually, can I rewind for a second? Uh, a colleague of mine listens to the pod mm. And I was talking to her about earworms, mm-hmm. right? And so so oh, if you listen back to a couple of pods ago, I talk about songs that get caught in your head yeah. and earworms, right? And I was like, oh, you should really listen to this, you know, because I had this earworm going on, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it was only after some time that she's like, oh, that's what you mean. I'm like, well, like what? She's like, I thought you actually had worms <laughs> in your ears. <laughs> it's disturbing. <laughs> Like, dude, that's just, that's I'm just not comfortable not... <laughs> hearing about that. Anyway, <laughs> continue. Yeah, okay. So this was in 2016 in multi-sensory research. And so they go through a fair bit of uh, previous research about how what we're listening to impacts what we taste. So it's not just that some sounds remind us of flavours, which there's been research about that too, that you can sort of get a composer to design something that's supposed to sound sour or sound sweet. Mm. And that then evokes that kind of sensation or reminds people, people can identify those sounds. But it's also that our taste perception can be altered by what we hear. So musically in Western culture, constant harmony between two or more sounds evokes stability and rest. So that Those are the kind of harmonies that we prefer. And whereas dissonance between sounds evokes tension, it's kind of that Jaws element, things like that. It's mm. kind of got the, or the sound in Psycho, those kind of sounds. Yeah. yeah. Evoke tension. It's not the same in other cultures. So it's, it's an interesting one where other cultures have different tones that match other emotions. How interesting. Yeah. But so, so far research has found that consonant music maps to the flavour of vanilla 
for most people and that dissonant music maps to things like citrus. But what they wanted to see was that if listening to those types of music actually changed the taste perception of fruit juice. So they mixed together a bunch of different fruit juices so that it wasn't immediately obvious what you were tasting. Mm -hmm. They developed two musical pieces that each had a consonant and a dissonant version. You can go to a website and listen listen to the music. Uh, it's the dissonant one I found incredibly uncomfortable to listen to and turned off quite quickly because it was just wow. so uncomfortable. Um, and so they had 39 participants who they presented the musical pieces to and they were each instructed to start drinking the juice as the music started each one of the pieces and then when the piece finished they had to rate how much they liked the music how much they liked the drink and how they rated the taste on a sweet to sour scale yeah yeah so here's an example of the dissonant music and then here's an example of the constant music so they're the same melody but a difference in terms of the harmony in them. So results-wise, the juice was rated as sour when listening to dissonant music, um, but the sourness perception wasn't impacted by melody or instrument type. It was only by harmony. That was the defining defining characteristic. Harmony type also impacted music and juice pleasantness, with participants liking the juice more when constant music was playing than when they tasted the same juice and dissonant music was playing. Yeah. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out about, you know, why this this function exists, but it seems like there's a few different sort of studies that they referred back to that were things like our tolerance for pain is higher if we're listening to consonant harmonic music than dissonant music, things like that. So they're wondering about sort of a pathway through emotions or something like that that impacts Yeah, like sort of like overlapping brain activation or something like that. exactly. Yeah. So if you ever cook something for someone and you want them to enjoy it more, consonant music. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Me neither. fascinating. All right. So I'm going to go – so Game of Thrones (laughs) – I knew you were going to go there. So Game of Thrones, at the time of recording, the last episode finished yesterday. Mm-hmm. I will not be giving out any spoilers. Kaiser Sorze is a cripple. No, <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that dates me, doesn't it? So I've been following a guy on Twitter, Radar Lifestyle, mm-hmm. who has been... <laughs> who published a article... Death is certain, the time is not. Mortality and survival in Game of Thrones. Okay. And they created, I'll show you, I'll get into it, but they created a... Survival survi- analysis? Survival uh, um, <laughs> analysis by time in Game yep. of Thrones and then looked at the predictors of that. Nice. And with each episode in the final series of Game of Thrones, they've been updating the model. <laughs> Wow. So hang on. How are you going to do this without giving any spoilers? I know. So this paper was published in Injury Epidemiology in 2018. Okay. So so if you're not up to date to then, then turn your ears off. So, and it was by Radar Lifestyle and Benjamin Brown. And they're from actually from Australia, from Macquarie University. So what they've done is they've done an analysis of seasons one to seven of Game of Thrones. And they've done a survival analysis. 
let, let me let me yeah. lay out the scene because so Amy's not a Game of Thrones no. fan. She no is. matter how many times Hunter messages me saying, "Have you? Are you watching it? I know you're not watching it, but could you be watching it?" It's just an excuse to drink red wine. They drink red wine the entire way through. But I can do that at any time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway. So the series portrays, if you don't know, a fictional society characterised by political upheaval, civil wars, widespread violence. Hunter's favourite things. (laughs) (laughs) Ceaseless feuding, lack of stable... Inappropriate sexual relationships. Sorry, I'm going to stop. You haven't even seen it. (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yes, there we go. Not at all. (laughs) Anyway, so, you know, there's no stable democratic government. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no institutions that can provide services to improve the health and well-being of inhabitants. Violence has been a feature of every society mm-hmm. throughout history, human history. Mm-hmm. Excuses. But there has been a sizable decline over time. So they're, yeah. they're, they're trying, tying this into yeah. actual academic study. Nice. You know, they cite that in pre-state societies, 15% of people died as a result of war as compared to less than 5 per 100,000 population today. So, you know... Mm. So, anyway, so they looked at a whole lot of reasons for why violence may have decreased over time. I'm going to skip over that. Yeah. But they do look at saying that the few studies have investigated the health and well-being of the characters of Game of Thrones. Tragedy. One, one study did describe a dermatological disease called grayscale, <laughs> whilst another discussed the forced fitness behaviours and associated hormonal responses in Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. But to the author's best knowledge... There was no epidemiological study of mortality and survival of Game of Thrones. Okay. So the primary, aim of, the, <laughs> the primary aim of this study was to examine the mortality and survival of the characters mm-hmm. and to specifically estimate the survival time and probability and to identify predictive factors and to describe causes and circumstances of death, which is Hilarious okay. in the way they did. The secondary aim was, of course, to give the authors an excuse to rewatch the first seven seasons of Game of Thrones. Fair enough. <laughs> in the um, fine print of the paper, mm. there, was, there was no funding sought for the study. <laughs> the original DVDs were already owned by the study <laughs> authors. <laughs> Excellent. So it's kind of interesting how they did it, right? So they included all the important characters in the first seven seasons. And mm-hmm. so they classified an important character as any individual who was human, mm-hmm. listed in the opening or closing credits, mm-hmm. appeared on screen during current events, so not flashbacks, was not already deceased when first appearing on screen, mm-hmm. so i.e. not a white walker. Yep. Non-credited characters were included if they interacted with another character in a way that was crucial to the storyline. Okay. And having a speaking role was not an essential requirement because some characters were not able to speak because of medical reasons such as an acquired brain injury or a non-elective glossectomy, which is removal hmm. of the tongue. Hmm. If, you'd, if you'd seen that, you would know. Anyway, yeah. I'm just <laughs> this is great though. Well, I found this really great. They looked at socio-demographic variables, mm-hmm. sex, social status, type of occupation, religious affiliation and allegiance. Mm-hmm. So house allegiance. Yeah. So social status, they classified them into either high-born or low-born. Mm-hmm. Type of occupation was classified as silk collar or boiled leather collar. <laughs> So yep. like warriors, farmers, yep. and other occupations, and allegiance. So you, you, you could be you're aligned to a house, yep. and they looked at prominence. So 
they calculated this is this this is complicated. They taking the number of episodes a character appeared in, dividing that by the number of total episodes that the character could have appeared in from their first appearance in the show. Okay. Then the ratio was multiplied by the number of seasons that the character had featured in. Mm-hmm. And then they classify them as high, medium, or low. Okay. So outcome measure was time to death. Survival time was based on the duration in hours that a character survived after being introduced. Okay. Most deaths were visualised in unashamedly graphic detail on screen. <laughs> Some deaths were only evident after being mentioned in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. For each death, the principal diagnosis, external cause of mortality, and place of occurrence was classified using the alphanumeric coding scheme of the ICD-10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Have a check, just check out, check out that table. There's like a large, large list There's of different ways that you could have died and that lot. they have classified that. Yeah. Favourites? Bitten or struck by other mammals. Assault by smoke, uh, <laughs> assault by steam and hot vapours, assault by a knife. Yeah. Intentional self-harm, fracture of the neck. You know, yeah. look, it goes on. Yeah. So 330 characters were included in the study. 71% male, 68% lowborn, 59% are boiled leather collar workers. At the end of the study period, 56.4% of characters had died. That's not a good outcome. The majority of deaths were injuries, 73%, particular wounds of the head, neck region, including 13 traumatic amputations at the neck level. The remainder of the deaths were chiefly burns, uh, 11% poisonings, and only two deaths were from natural causes. Hmm. So they've got a So great a highly representative sample of the general population. That's it. Yeah. Most common occurrences were assault, operations of war, legal execution. Look, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they've got a great survival graph. Mm-hmm. Mean survival time is estimated to be 28 hours and 48 <laughs> minutes. The probability of surviving at least one hour on the show was 0.86. Hmm. It's not great. It's not good, no. There's a shorter median survival time for males than females, lowborns mm. versus highborns, and for those who did not switch allegiance. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> the probability of dying within the first hour after appearing on screen was about 14%. That's high. <laughs> It's, it's really, not good. It's not good, no. It's not good. So, you know, so the survival time varied, yeah. but it was certain. Yeah. <laughs> Death is certain. Yeah. Time is not. That's <laughs> the title. They did sort of go into a discussion about why this this does occur in Game <laughs> of Thrones. Low legitimacy of the ruling power. You know, there's an emphasis on war rather than commerce. There's very limited medical care. Some characters express concern for human welfare through attempts to abolish slavery, but those ideas are not universal. They so do society is toxic and we're all going to die? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Game of Thrones done. Nice. You want to watch it now? No. No, no you haven't lured me in. No. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's that's it for us. Yeah, that was lengthy, today. but good. Yeah. We will catch you next time for a as yet undetermined topic. <laughs> <laughs> We're winging it. We're winging moment. it. We're winging it for a bit. We'll figure it out. Yep. You'll be there with us. Send us suggestions. Yep. Yep. Two shrinks pod at gmail.com or Twitter. That's it. Two shrinks pod. Or skywriting. That's the way. Skywriting pigeon to hunter's house. Good. Yep. See you soon. Bye.